All right, Exodus chapter 3, Exodus chapter 3. I know you're thinking, wait a minute, we're going right back to Exodus. I thought we were done with that one. Well, we're going back. Exodus chapter 3 eventually, and then maybe Acts 17, if you want to mark your place. We'll have to kind of see how things go here. Uh, I may have to call an audible, I'm not sure. There's a lot to get to this morning. Tis the nature of the topic when we're talking about who God is, uh, there's a lot with each each week that I'm I'm very quickly realizing I'm probably going to I'm going to leave out more than I actually am able to, to talk about, and that's just the nature of what it is that we're doing. So uh, good morning again. Happy Father's Day. I'm glad that you guys have uh, joined us. I know these type of days can be hard for uh, a lot of people for m- many reasons, but I do hope today is, uh, is a good day for you and for your family to be able to remember and to celebrate. And I don't know, are you guys like good gift givers on days like this when it comes to Father's Day? No? No. I a phone? Oh, a funnel. A phone might have been better. <laughs> um, yeah, it, uh, it's the same for, for me. I, I don't understand. My, my dad may be watching. I'm not sure. Um, I used to be better on Mother's Day. My mom was easier to buy for, but now she's not so easy to buy for either. They both pretty much have whatever they, they need or they want, and if they don't, then they go and buy it, or it's too expensive, and I'm not going to buy it. So, um, it can be tough for me to figure out how to, uh, how to, how to give a, a gift, you know, for the guy who has everything. You know, you've heard that. It's kind of a cliche, but uh, it, can be, it can be true. You don't ever, you, you don't want to go the gift card route, even though that's probably what they want more than anything. You don't want to do that because that feels kind of hollow and, and empty. So you're kind of like, what, what do you do? And sometimes we figure things out and sometimes uh, we don't. So what do you get? Uh, the guy who already has bought all the stuff that he needs, and I generally n- never know. It can be hard to buy gifts uh, like that. Um, today, on Father's Day, we're going to be talking about God, and specifically, we're going to be talking about a God who literally has everything, who has nothing that he is in need of, who, who, who does not need us to get him a gift, to give him something in order for him to be complete, because he has everything. So we're studying the attributes of God, and we're a couple weeks in now. The first week we've talked about uh, His majesty. This is where the title comes, Things Too Wonderful, where things are too big. That's where the title for this comes from. So first was His majesty. The second thing that we talked about was His simplicity. This is what we talked about last week, His simplicity. Now, if you weren't here last week, and you weren't, uh, you, you weren't here to, to to uh, listen in and understand what we're talking about, that might be really, really confusing for you guys whenever I say the simplicity of God because that sounds like that's an oxymoron. Well, you'd have to go back and listen to it, but basically what it means is that God is not in parts. He is whole. He does not uh, have his, his, his different characteristics kind of add up to make him who he is, and if one of those characteristics goes, goes away, he's no longer God. That's not how he works He's not in parts. All that he is, he is all the time. And so you you can't set his attributes against one another. You can't set his justice against his love. And you can't set his grace against his his power. You, you, You can't do that because they all work together. 
And so you can't, you can't do things like looking uh, at who God was in the Old Testament and say, well, that was a wrathful, judgmental God in the Old Testament. But then you get to the New Testament and you have a loving, kind God in the New Testament. It's not just that, that God has these attributes. It's that they never change. And that is who he is at all times. He is those attributes. And so this kind of brings us to where we are right now in this series. And what I'm trying to do is kind of help this series to flow and kind of start with, this is kind of a, this is to help us. This isn't the best way to to talk about this, but to help us, there's certain attributes. If you talk about them in a certain way and the way you explain them, others kind of flow from those. Now that's not really how that works in God. There's not a hierarchy. They're all together again the simplicity of God, but for us it can help to know some aspects and see how the others kind of relate to that because they all relate together. And as we get started this morning, before I move into the next attribute that we're going to be looking at, I want to say a word about one of my aims in doing this series. My hope is that as we go through these attributes of God each week, that your eyes and your heart would be lifted up. And we talked about this a couple of weeks ago. I want you to gain an appreciation for the one true living God, that you would see him rightly and that your heart would be encouraged in the midst of whatever life might throw at you. You see, the last 50 years or so, and honestly, this goes all the way back to the days of, of Paul. He talks about it in 1 Timothy, but uh, the, the trend has been to, to make God seem to be more relatable when we talk about God. This is what a lot of churches and a lot of preaching has, 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 has tried to do to remove God from being this thing that is high and lofty and so different that, that we can't understand him at all and kind of quite literally bring him down to earth. And uh, what that's led to is a general philosophy of preaching that would be called felt needs preaching. And all, all that means is that, that the, the preaching is aimed at what you, the congregation, walked in here feeling this morning. What you walked in here feeling like, man, I really hope the pastor talks about this because I just need a word for this. The, the need that you recognize and that if the pastor addresses it, it would make you feel great and it would really kind of satisfy things. Now there's a place for that type of application, but if that is where our preaching and our time together aims for us, then we have aimed at a very poor target and one that we will seldom hit because our felt needs are ever fluctuating. To address them week to week would be exhausting for me as a preacher and it wouldn't be all that helpful for you because as soon as you think you know what you need, it changes. And so one need can be addressed and then the next need pops right back up and you're on this endless treadmill of spirituality saying, God, I just need one more thing for you to make me happy and to put me back together. And you end up every week just right back where you started from because there's always another need that pops up. And there's a reason why there's always another need that pops up. And we'll get to that here in just a minute. But my aim in this series is that you would know God better because what you ultimately need more than anything is that you need him. You need to know him. 
it is to be our entire life's aim. It is the aim of the Christian life to know him better. And when you know him as he is, then you will find that certain things will begin to change in how you react to the world, how you relate to the world, and how you view your problems. And so instead of addressing each and every felt need that you might walk in here with, maybe it's your kids, maybe it's your marriage, maybe it's your finances, maybe it's, who knows, it could be all kinds of different things. Maybe it's, 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 it's the coronavirus, maybe it's politics, whatever it is, instead of me addressing each one of those things, what I want to do is I want to give you a view of God that reorders all of those things and that allows you to say, this is who God is and this is how everything else is handled. And so one of the things in this series is that as, I, as we kind of lay this out and as we, we kind of uh, grow our view of who God is, one of my explicit aims in this series is that I hope by the end of it you pray more. I hope you become more of a people of prayer, more of a person of prayer. Not because you feel guilty about your lack of prayer. That's how us preachers usually get you to pray. We just make you feel guilty about it. We talk about how little you pray, about the average amount of time a Christian spends every day praying. Those numbers are super, super low. And so we, we, we try to give you all kinds of strategies for praying more. Then we make you feel guilty, and we send you out, and we hope that will make you pray more. And that lasts for like a week or two or maybe six if you're really dedicated. But that's about it. I want you to pray more because perhaps for the first time in your life, you finally have a God worth praying to. You see, if all we ever talk about is felt needs preaching, then you can begin to believe that God exists to meet whatever need it is that you feel is most pressing right now. And so you have a view of God that doesn't match the character in the nature of God. You see God as a means to an end. You see God as someone who is here to, to serve you, to address you, to fix you and all of your problems. And the reality is the more you pray that way, the less likely you are to pray again in the future. Do you know why that is the case? The more you see God as a means to an end for you? It's because every single time you do that, you tell yourself just like a, a small little message that says, God is just kind of extra. Like, if I can't handle it, then I go to God. If I can't accomplish it, then I go to God. If I can't fix it, then I go to God. And every single time you do that, you tell your brain, you tell your heart, he's not, he's not quite as important as I thought he was. And then over the course of time, almost imperceptible, imperceptible however you say that, almost in a way you can't see it, uh, what happens is God becomes just a, a thing, a, a token. We've talked about it before. He becomes a, a, a butler. He becomes a small God with a small goal. And just without noticing it, he becomes just a little bit smaller every single time, a little bit more insignificant every time. He becomes just a little bit, eventually, unnecessary 
because you can convince yourself that you can do it on your own anyway. And an unnecessary, token, insignificant God is no God at all. And he certainly is not a God worth praying to. And my hope is that we can destroy that little God that exists in your head and help you to see a God that is big, that is majestic, that is the point of our lives. And that kind of God, seen rightly, that's a God worth praying to. And I'm convinced once you see that God, you won't, you won't be able to stop praying to him. So this morning we're going to see that this God is not just some token that exists to help you out of a tough spot that somehow must show up to meet our need whenever we call, but he is in fact a God that exists fully independent of us, his creation. He is fully independent of everything. And so this morning's attribute that we're going to look at is called the aseity of God. Now that's not a word you use a whole lot. The aseity of God. I didn't even know how to say that about two weeks ago. So it, it comes from a Latin and it basically, basically means of himself. And so we're going to talk about the self-sufficiency of God. The self-sufficiency of of God, the self-existence of God. I know it's a weird word, but I'm trying to give you some of these words. If you don't want to remember some of the bigger words as we go through this and talk about it, it's fine. I'll probably forget some of it too. But I want you to see these words and hear these words because these are, these are the ways that theologians talk about things, and it can be helpful for you to, to kind of rewire your brain to stop talking about God in ways that, that you completely understand and instead lift your mind just a little bit to realize okay we got to work through some of this just a little bit and all it's communicating is that god exists in and of himself and he needs nothing else so the book of exodus chapter three the book of exodus chapter three we're going to go back to this passage that, that we uh, spent some time on back when we were in the book of Exodus, and we're just going to spend a little bit of time on it, and we're going to look at it from this perspective of the self-sufficiency of God. So Exodus chapter 3, verse 13. Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. Now, this is Moses and the burning bush. This is where we're at here in chapter 3. Moses has come to the burning bush, and and God is talking to him uh, through this this bush that is never consumed. It is a self-sufficient source of flame. It needs nothing else to help it burn. He comes to him, and he says, Moses says, The God of your fathers has sent me... Then Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask, what is his name? What shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent you. Now we know this passage, right? We've studied this a lot. This is a this is the, the greatest hits list in, in, in Christian passages. We know this, this passage. This is where God gave his covenant name to the people of Israel for the first time, Yahweh. And we use that word, and we know that word, and we know what that word means. It means, I am. 
But we use it just kind of like a name, like, like this is one of the, the names of God. And it, it is that, but, but it has meaning packed into it too. God isn't just saying I am in the sense that he exists, though he is saying that. He is saying more than that. When God says I am that I am, he is making a declarative statement about how he exists as well. You know the, the famous saying by the, the philosopher Descartes, he says, I think, therefore I am. When he said that, he was making a statement about what he needed in order to prove to himself that he existed. And for him, that began with being able to, to acknowledge the fact that he could think. God is not limited to those philosophical breakdowns. He exists because he exists. He simply is. Why is he? Because he is. Now, I know that sounds a little bit like circular reasoning, and you're kind of missing the point, but that, that really kind of is the, the point. You know, if, if you say, isn't there some place that this has to start? You can't just say he is because he is. Parents, we know this conversation, right? We've been there. Kids ask, where did my sister come from? And you carefully say, we're going to say God made your sister. And where did my grandpa come from? Well, God made your grandpa. Well, where did the earth come from? Well, God made the earth. Well, where did God come from? And then you have to try to, 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 to help them understand that, well, God didn't come from anywhere. God always was which gets into a, another thing, talking about the eternality of God. But God always was. He didn't come from anything. Nothing created him. Nothing started him. God simply is. And why does that have to be true? Because if God came from something, then that would mean that he was dependent upon something. And if God is dependent on something, then he is no longer God. He is no longer God the thing that he is dependent upon would be more important than God himself. So how does that work itself out in the real world? How, how do we work through this and, and, and work through these kind of philosophical gymnastics as we try to think through this and some of these uh, complicated things? For one, it means that, that he is in need of nothing. If he is I am, then he needs nothing to be him. He doesn't need to be created. He doesn't need to be sustained. Or to say it negatively, kind of the, 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 conver the converse of that, he isn't lacking anything. He isn't in need of something. He has all he needs. And if this is true, then this begins to put us in our proper place when we talk about creation. You see, it's, it's a, a popular thing to talk about in what I would call kind of pop theology. You find people talking about creation. And they say, well, why did God create anyone? Why did God begin this process of creating something new? Why did God do this? And it's a popular response to say, well, God created humans because God was lonely. God was lonely. God made us so he could have some company. We like it when company comes over, and God likes it whenever he has company too. Now that's a cute little answer that might be great 
to answer a child's uh, question to creation, or at least sound great. But it is not scriptural at all. It is a terrible theology that can lead to the kind of praying that I talked about earlier. God did not create us because he was lonely. To do so would be to admit that there was something lacking, something missing in who God is, and that God needed us to fulfill that thing that was lacking in and of himself, and then God would no longer be God. In fact, we would be greater than God himself because he would need us. If God needs me to fulfill something lacking in himself, then I become in some measure above God. And this is, I'm convinced, why many of us do not pray. Because functionally, this is our theology. We believe on some level God needs us. God is not dependent on any part of his creation to be who he is. If he had never made us, he would still be just as loving, just as just, holy, and gracious. He would be all of those things if he had never made us. There's a popular worship song out right now. We've sing it here uh, quite often. I actually think it's probably on the schedule uh, for next week. But there's a popular uh, song that's out right now. It's called, What a Beautiful Name. You guys know that song? You guys remember singing that song? There's parts of this song that have some of my favorite lines in any of the songs that we sing. And, and it says, you have no rival, you have no equal. I love that part of that song. But there's another part of the song that, that also gets your attention. It's got this line that says, you didn't want heaven without us. So Jesus, you brought heaven down. Now that line in and of itself isn't wrong. But if you start with bad theology, you can very quickly get to bad, bad application. If you take this to mean that God was somehow lacking and that he needed us to be happy or to be joyful or to keep from being lonely, then you have way too high a view of yourself and way too low a view of God. Whenever, whenever the, that, that song says you didn't want heaven without us, the, the writers were not intending it to come across as though God somehow needed to fill, to fill something that was lacking in him. But sometimes bad theology can, can creep into our, our terminology, and we have to be careful. God wasn't lonely. God didn't need us. A.W. Tozer you're going to hear me quote A.W. Tozer a lot, uh, and I told you each week I'm going to bring up a couple of books. I want to recommend them to you. Last week I talked about Jen Wilkins' books. They are fantastic, super helpful for uh, me this week, but I'm going to recommend two others to you before I get to this, this next part. One is this book by A.W. Tozer. It's called The Knowledge of the Holy. This book for me, outside of the Bible, is probably the most influential book in my life. Not very thick, very, very dense. It's very good. If you come through this, this thing's all, all stained and yellowed, and it's got markings all over it. It's got underlines all over the place. It is a fantastic book talking about the attributes of God. And the other one is this book uh, by R.C. Sproul. I'm not through it yet, but it's super helpful in talking about this, and it reads more like a devotional. It's called Enjoying God. If you want some more resources on this, these are two really, really good ones. But A.W. Tozer responding to this idea that God isn't lonely and that God didn't need us, this is, the, this is what A.W. Tozer says. He says, 
Were all human beings suddenly to become blind, still the sun would shine by day and the stars by night. For these owe nothing to the millions who benefit from their light. So even if we're all blind, that's not going to stop the sun from shining. So were every man on earth to become an atheist. It could not affect God in any way. He is what he is in himself without regard to any other. To believe in him adds nothing to his perfections. To doubt him takes nothing away. He does not need us. The line in the song still holds true, though, understood correctly. He chose to pursue us, to redeem us, to save us, because he desired for us to be with him, not because there was something lacking in him, quite the opposite. It was because there was something in him that he was completely full of, namely his grace and his love. He wasn't lacking something. He was completely full of something, and he sought us in that. It wasn't because he was lacking, it's because he was full. And it wasn't because he needed something, it's because he had something that he pursued us. Again, A.W. Tozer says it this way, His interest in his, cre- in his creatures arises from his sovereign good pleasure, not from any need those creatures can supply, nor from any completeness they can bring to him who is complete in himself. His interest in his creatures arises from his sovereign good pleasure. Praise God. It doesn't arise from anything in me. Because if it depended on me for God to pursue me, it would never happen. We are meaningful, but we are not necessary. And why are we meaningful? Because God declared it to be so, and for no other reason. God simply doesn't need us, nor anything else, to be God. Everything that God is comes from himself. This is what it means to be truly self-sufficient. Y'all ever watch any of those survival shows on TV? Not, not like Bear Grylls survival stuff. I used to like that. That's, that's a pretty good show. But the cameramen have it worse than Bear does. And the cameramen don't get enough credit for what they have to do. But y'all ever watch any of those survival I can't remember. There's one that Emily and I watched like a year ago. And basically what happens is they drive these people out to the Arctic and they just drop them off. And they say, here's a backpack, here's a camera, make sure you record stuff because we're making a TV show, and here's a satellite phone. When you're done, just call. And if you're the last one to call, you win some money. Some people think that sounds like a good idea. Apparently those people thought that sounded like a good idea. We watched some of that, that show, and it was kind of entertaining. And what you see is like for the, the, the first c- couple of weeks, uh, they're out there and they're trying their best to find stuff. They're, they're like killing little squirrels and, and like little rodents and, and like roasting them rotisserie style and eating like all their like innards, like, like everything because they got to have every single piece of, of fat and, and, and energy and calories that they can get. Meanwhile, I'm like eating ice cream while I'm watching them uh, and thinking, man, that looks terrible, but this is pretty good. I bet you wish you had some of this. Um, and so we, we watched this, and the whole point in this show is to prove that these people could survive out in the Arctic, that they could, on their own, hunt their food, build their shelters, warm their bodies, and live, in a word that they could become self-sufficient. But that's how you define self-sufficient for humans, because they're still dependent on the dead animal on the berries that they find, 
on the warmth from the fire, on the shelter that they build. They still need something else in order to continue being. But when we talk about God being self-sufficient, it's an entirely different conversation. He needs nothing else to exist. I am is his name. He fully sustains himself. He is the source of it all. One theologian called this the key attribute that unlocks all the other attributes. And it helps us to see how the others can be. So, so let's just take one instance. God is holy. God is holy. That's an attribute of God. We'll get to that one eventually. But God is holy. On what grounds is God holy? What makes him holy? Does some external standard of righteousness make God holy? No, he is holy because his holiness finds its root in him, not something external. Nothing makes him holy. But whenever it comes to humans, 1 Peter says it this way, But he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. So we're called also to be holy. But what Peter goes on to explain is that we can't produce that out of ourselves. We need something external to make us holy. And then Peter goes on to talk about the cross and the resurrection and the atonement for sin. And the point that he's making is God is holy because that's who God is. He doesn't need something outside of himself. But we, on the other hand, do need something outside of ourselves. It gets at the heart of the gospel. So whatever God is, he is that because he chose to be that. Because he is that. And it comes from who he is. So let's, t- let's take another one, all right? We talk about how God is worthy. We use that word a lot. We're saying that today. God is worthy. All right, so I've got $10 here, right? I've got $10. Let's say I were to bring one of you guys up here and I were to say, here you go, here's $10, go do whatever you want with it. You would be pretty excited about that, right? You'd be pretty excited. All right, that's $10. Why would you be excited about this piece of paper? It's just a piece of paper. If I gave you this piece of paper, you'd be excited. If I gave you this piece of paper, you'd be like, gee, thanks, where's the trash can? I really don't need that. You just said all those things. What, what makes this piece of paper different than this piece of paper? It's the fact that I can take this piece of paper over to Walgreens and I can get a Coke. I can take this piece of paper to the store and I can get something with it. Why? Because it has worth. And why does it have worth? Because Walgreens says it's worth something. Because Walmart says it's worth something. Because I can buy something from you because you say it's worth something. It needs something outside of itself to give it its worth. God is not like that. God is worth something because he is worth something. It doesn't matter whether we ascribe worth to him or not. He is worthy. Do you see how that works? He is worthy because of who he is, not because of what we ascribe to him. Again, Tozer's quote is so helpful. Were the whole world to become an atheist and deny who God is, were the whole earth to become an atheist and say God doesn't exist, it would not change his worth one iota because he is still worth just as much because he determines his own worth. 
couple more things this morning. I told you last week that uh, a lot of what we will do is we will consider the, the, the positive elements in God and, and, and some of the best ways to bring out the positive is for us to uh, kind of draw out the negative implications of that in humans. Last week we talked about the communicable and the incommunicable attributes of God. Communicable, communicable are the ones that he, in some measure, shares with us or calls us to. Incommunicable, he does not. He doesn't share those. He doesn't call us to those. They are the, the things that are true of him alone. Communicable, in, in done correctly, we should pursue those. The incommunicable ones, this is where we get in trouble when we pursue those. He does not share them, and it would be wrong for us to pursue them as well. We talked about this last week in the garden. The root of sin, born out of our desire to take hold of an attribute that was only God's. That we would eat the fruit, not because the fruit was tempting, but because the ability to be like God was tempting. So when we attempt to become like God in areas that he has deemed off limits, or simply unattainable for his creatures, then we begin to see how sin works its way into our lives. So if we were to say, well, I want to, I want to pursue following God, and, and, and I want to know Him, and I want to be like Him, well, that can sound like a great goal. That can sound like a good calling. And there are ways that we are called to be like Him. And while we might mean that in a positive way, but to pursue being like God in all ways would prove to be our undoing. So let, let's, let's just take this one. God's self-existence, what we're talking about today. It is an often committed sin of humans that we would desire to become like God in this way. You see, God designed us to need things. And each of these, and each of these things that we need should in some measure point our hearts back to God. Do you understand that? When we run into a limit that should remind us we're not God, He is, and I need something, He does not. Let, let me just look two two examples we can talk about. Sleep. Sleep. Sleep is a core need of every single human. You cannot go without it. You want to know how weak and feeble you are? Try to stay awake for two days. You try to stay awake for two days and then make sure somebody has an iPhone to record you because you're going to say something stupid. You're going to say something and you're going to look like a, a fool or you're going to start hallucinating. You stay up for about 72 hours, you'll probably hallucinate. You'll probably uh, kind of like pass out. They call it like micro sleeping where you're kind of like in and out. You won't be able to carry on a conversation. You won't, your, your brain won't work. Your endocrine system will begin to, to shut down and, and malfunction. You won't have any cognitive abilities at all. And this is just going a couple of days without sleep. And listen to what the psalmist says about God in Psalm 121. I lift up my eyes to the hills. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord who made the heaven and the earth. He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. God does not need sleep. He does not need rest because he is not lacking of anything. 
But we are built that we are not self-sufficient. We are not self-existent. We need things in order to continue to be. Yet sleep deprivation continues to be one of the primary things that drives health crises in this country. Did you know that the coronavirus is not the only pandemic we're in? The CDC has declared sleep deprivation to be uh, a pandemic as well across America. And why is that? Because we are consumed with trying to be like God. Trying to do as much as we can. Consume as much as we can. And we do it at the expense of sleep because we think we can keep on going. Yet sleep humbles us all. We all need it. Let me give you another one. Food. This is an obvious one. But why is, is at the heart of the, the Lord's Prayer where Jesus says, let me teach you how to pray. Uh, and he says, give us this day our daily bread. Why is that in there? It's a stand-in for this very idea. That we would go to the one who needs nothing to supply everything that we need. He would supply our food. He would supply our drink. He would supply our rest. He would supply all that we need in order to continue to be. And it's in the heart of the Lord's Prayer because it is important for us to remember we need Him. He does not need us. He doesn't need His daily bread. He doesn't need sustenance. We do. We must eat. And not only that, we have to eat the right mix of foods or our bodies will begin to self-destruct. We need food in order to exist. This is how God has designed us. And you say, well, okay, that's obvious. I understand that. We could spend the rest of the day talking about the limitations of humans, the limitations God has built into us. We need something else. It's not just physical. It's relational, too. It's relational, too. We like to pretend that we don't need others in order to achieve what we need in this life. We like to celebrate the self-made man, the entrepreneur that single-handedly builds his business from the ground up. We like to celebrate the independent woman and the person who seems to never need help. But that person is a myth. Everyone needs help. Everyone needs community. Everyone needs someone else. Everyone. But not God. He needs nothing and he needs no one. Not for his existence, not for his joy, and not to accomplish his will. I have blind spots. I know that. I need someone to point those out to me. God has no blind spots. I need accountability. I need community. This is why we have discipleship groups, because God has built us so that our spiritual growth is dependent upon that meeting those needs together with one another. It's dependent upon that. That's why the church exists. There would be no need for the church if growing in godliness was a, a self-improvement project, but it's not. It's a community improvement project. You need others to help you. This is the truth of the way that it works. There's a lot more we could talk about. I'm going to call kind of an audible. I'm going to put some of this off, I think, for uh, a week or two from here where we can go to. But the reality is that the gospel is dependent upon this. The gospel is dependent upon this idea that God exists on his own. Because if God doesn't exist on his own, something bigger than God is out there. But the reality is 
we must recognize our limitations. And we must let our limitations not drag us down, not pull us away, not make us work that much harder in order to try to push those limitations. Instead, we should let those limitations say, that's fine. I know I can't do it all. I know that I will grow old. I know that I will grow weak. I know that my body will break down. That's fine because I know that I need other things. But I also know that the one that I pray to needs nothing else. He has all that he needs in and of himself. And for that, he is worthy of our worship. Not because we decided he was worthy, but because he had all that he needed in the first place. And he simply is worthy. Will you pray with me? Father, this morning, it is our confession that we try so hard to push up against every one of those limitations you have sat on us. Not because we just look to do more, not because just because we, we, we feel like we need to push things, but because we, in some measure, want to push against this idea that we can't just do it ourselves. Father, help us repent of this attitude, this mindset that says we are all we need. Bring us to our knees. Humble us. Help us confess our need for you. And then call us to things we could never do. Like being holy. Like being righteous. Like being justified. And drive it into our hearts that there is no such thing as self-justification for us. And then let us throw ourselves at the cross. Plead for mercy. Plead for justification. Plead for atonement. And God, we ask based on all that is within you that you would pour out that mercy and that grace and that atonement. It's in Christ's name we pray.